Hello, and welcome to Mixed DNA Podcast, the podcast with two mixed race hosts talking about any and everything. Each week, we pick a topic, do some research, throw in our own thoughts and opinions, and put everything together to share here. I'm Melissa. And I'm Vanessa. This week, we're talking about boy bands. And listeners, please prepare yourself, because I'm sure you're going to hear us sing a little bit in this episode, and I warn you, we are horrible singers, but it comes from the heart. We're going to take a look at boy bands from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and into the present day. We'll go through the history of the phenomena. We're going to talk about chart-topping hits, how and why some of the groups were formed, which markets they target, and how they target those markets. And we'll end off today's episode talking about some of our own boy band-related stories, our favorite bands, songs, and members. Let's get started, shall we? Boy band, a noun can be found in the dictionary, and it is defined by Oxford as a pop group composed of young men whose music and image are designed to appeal primarily to a young teenage audience. Merriam-Webster's definition is a small ensemble of males in their teens and 20s who play pop songs geared especially to a young female audience. Hate them or love them, and trust me, there are a lot of closeted boy band fans out there, you can't not admit that boy bands are some of the most successful musicians in music history. I personally have dabbled in the boy band genre. I fangirled hard over New Kids on the Block, which I'll discuss later on. And I still fangirl for New Kids on the Block. And there are other bands and songs that I've been very fond of over the years. And I don't see anything wrong with boy bands. I think they're great. They are the epitome of traditional pop culture. And for the most part, the epitome of pop music as well. I agree. I love boy bands. I fangirled over many a boy band. Uh, Not so much now, but I know there are some good ones there. Um, I don't know if this band can be categorized as a boy band. I guess more of a rock alternative version. Anyway, Oasis was my boy band. Me and Liam were obviously going to get married and live happily ever after. Okay. I didn't really think any of the other boy bands were good looking, in my opinion. Uh, Maybe Justin Timberlake. I don't know. But They sang amazing, so I still like the band for those purposes. It became consensus that boy bands began way back with the Barbershop Quartet. Via Barbershop.org, we've learned that Barbershop Harmony is a style of unaccompanied vocal music characterized by four art chords for every melody note and a primarily rhythmic texture of four performers. The lead second tenor, the first tenor, the bass, and the baritone. The roots of barbershop harmony can be traced back to African-American tradition of the late 1800s in the southern U.S. In a 1992 academic paper published by Lynn Abbott, we learned that in the 1880s and 90s, the Black community harmonized recreationally popular songs of the day, as well as spirituals and folk songs. They would improvise harmonies according to African-American musical practice, and from this we have what we know today as barbershop style. The crispness and melodic tones made the sound perfect for white minstrel performers who would use blackface to perform and parody black culture. The sound became so popular that white professional quartets brought the sound to the early recording studios. Black quartets were, of course, rarely recorded, and when they were, they were never given mass distribution or marketing like their white counterparts. From the combination of traditional barbershop and the minstrel versions, a hybrid of the style would form. And because the white performance and recordings were at the forefront, elements of the black versions would be lost and people would associate the genre and its recordings with white. Thus, unfortunately, the genre was basically stolen. Barbershop was extremely popular between the years of the 1900s to 1919. 
And some of the most popular quartets were the Peerless Quartet and the Hayden Quartet. The genre gradually faded into obscurity in the 1920s, although barbershop harmonies remained as evidence in acapella forms and traditional Black gospel and white gospel. Let's now move 50 years forward into the 60s and 70s, where we're able to see boy bands more similar to what we know them to be today. Many argue that the Beatles were the first big boy band, while some argue that they don't fit the genre at all. Personally, in terms of success and a screaming fan base of teenage girls, I can as well, as you can see, obviously, the similarities, but they wrote their own music, actual music, they were musicians, not just solely performers with singing ability, that's apparently the argument, and to that I say, no go. The Beatles were definitely a boy band. I agree with you. The girls in there at their concerts just went insane. So definitely a boy band. And I mean, most of their fans were women and cried and fainted over how handsome they were. Who was the handsomest? I would say, I guess, uh, what's his name? George. George was the handsomest. But George gets the least amount of attention. I like, know, when but... You- when you bring them to the forefront today. I, I guess. But he like, had one of my favorite songs. For yeah. me, like, John is not the cutest member. Oh. But oh. I think that's who I would have fangirled for back in the John? 60s. Yes. John. Mm-hmm. I would have Georged. And I probably would have got him because everybody was too busy over Paul. And I guess nobody liked Ringo. Poor Ringo. Ringo is definitely the coolest now, though. True. If I had to say someone was cool, it'd be Ringo. George was cool. No, no. no. Ringo. The glasses, the hair, it's all Ringo. True. They all had the same hair. No, I mean now, Ringo. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Now that we've established that we can speak about the Beatles for today's episode as the earliest band of the modern day boy band, a little background. They were an English band, some will say rock, and I will argue anyone to the bone that their music is definitely pop. They were formed in Liverpool in 1960. The band members were John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. These are four names, no matter what race or culture or country you come from, you know them or have at least heard of them. They are regarded as the most influential band of all time, and each member is a superstar in their own right. They helped revolutionize pop culture, pop music, artistic presentation, sociocultural movements, and the music industry. Since their inception, the height of their career as a band, and even after their breakup, they have amassed 111 nominations from pretty much every music organization and have won 52 awards, including an Oscar in 1971, a Billboard Music Award in 2001, and nine Grammy Awards from 1965 to 1997. In 2014, they were awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Grammys. In 1964, the Beatles refused to perform at a show that had segregated the audience. In this fashion, these four white young British celebrities were showing their support for the U.S. civil rights movement by refusing to perform at the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville, Florida. As fans waited and started to get antsy, the officials at the concert eventually allowed the segregated audience to merge. When John Lennon hit the stage, he said, we never play to a segregated audience and we aren't going to start now. I'd sooner lose our appearance money. A year after that incident, the Beatles, still passionate about not playing segregated shows, had their beliefs incorporated into their contracts that they would not be required to perform in front of a segregated audience. Keep in mind that they only had this problem in the U.S., and the struggle for racial equality in the United States is what later inspired Paul McCartney to write the song Blackbird. 
More specific details of this event were captured in the documentary, The Beatles, Eight Days a Week. To the Beatles, what they were looking for was just common sense, but it turns out it was quite the statement. Also, if you're looking for more info on this specific topic, we suggest a quick Google search for Dr. Kitty Oliver, a Black U.S. author and oral historian on race and change who was actually at the specific Jacksonville concert. Her story of that night is worth reading. The Beatles, of course, had Black fans, but there are many out there convinced that the Beatles stole Black music. One of the biggest controversies over the career of the Beatles were the accusations that they gentrified Black music and stole their sound from the subculture and made millions. This never sat well with John Lennon, who was always open about his love of music made by Black American musicians and said it was almost exclusively what he listened to as a teenager and what gave him his musical awakening that he would, of course, one day share with the world. He says that the Beatles' reinterpretation of music is a way of showing adoration for it. I know this is an old age argument that comes up time and time again in music circles, but in my personal opinion, as a fan of many genres of music and a variety of different musical artists of all races, isn't music supposed to be something that everyone can appreciate and love? I'm not stupid. I realize that a lot of music, what we know and appreciate as music today, came from Black culture, blues, gospel, rock and roll, bluegrass, etc. And I do realize that white people were easier made to profit from music and the recording industry back in the day, and opportunities weren't equal. And probably there's still a lot of disparity in the industry considering the world we live in is still prejudiced, but music is for the people. It's so personal and something you can feel in your soul. I think reinterpreting any music or any artist or any genre, when you give credit, if you don't happen to be doing something original, should be regarded as an honor. I agree with everything you said. I don't think it's stealing. For the most part, I think that whichever race listens to any kind of Black music, old or new, they feel inspired by it. And for those who are professional, definitely say where their inspirations are from. So like you said, music is and should be enjoyed by all people, should be shared and, you know, sharing of ideas and what what can make new and beautiful music. Still considering the 60s and into the 70s and its impact on boy bands, the world would fall in love with the Osmonds and two Motown produced boy bands, The Temptations and The Jackson Five. The two latter have stood the test of time and all three groups helped form the template of future boy bands. The Osmonds were a U.S. family music group who reached the height of their success in the early to mid-70s. The brothers, Alan, Wayne, Merrill, Jay, Jimmy, and Donnie began as a barbershop quartet. Youngest brothers, Jimmy and Donnie, would later join. The brothers were a quintet from the 1970s to the 1980s. A quartet from 62 to 70, 82 to 2007, and 2018 to 2019. And they also performed as duos, trios, and solo artists into the present day. The Osmonds have sold over 77 million records worldwide through their 10 albums released from 1970 to 1979. The Osmond family was honored for their achievements in the entertainment industry with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 2003. I feel like I know one of their songs, but I can't guess. And I was instructed not to Google, so I got nothing. <laughs> I don't know diddly about the Osmonds. Like, I know they existed. I know Donnie Osmond, but not as a boy band member, as a solo artist. And I know him alongside Marie Osmond. And I know Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. But I cannot name a single song by the Osmonds. Sorry, Osmond family. Full of me for a reason. Nope, nope. 
No, that's Crazy a Jackson horse. five. I have Which no one? idea what one bad apple don't spoil the whole that's the Jackson's. Oh, but they sang it too, I guess. Double loving. Oh, you're looking oh, at God. it now. You're looking it up now? Yeah. What oh. part of this? Have a party? Are you up there? Can't stop. I don't know. No, I don't know any of those. Sorry. Yeah, I got nothing. Okay, so- continue. Sorry, Osmonds. Okay. <laughs> I know. The Temptations. Them. I know their songs well. Cloud Nine, yes. My Girl, Ain't Too Proud to Beg. They were played a lot in my house growing up, more so than the Beatles and obviously more than the Osmonds. The Temptations were a vocal group from Detroit, Michigan, who had successful singles and albums under Motown Records in the 60s and 70s. The group formed in 1960, and the classic five members were David Ruffin, Melvin Franklin, Otis Williams, Eddie Kendricks, and Paul Williams. Other performers would come and go as the career continued. Their sound was psychedelic soul, and they were instrumental in the evolution of R&B and soul music. The group was renowned for their choreography, distinct harmonies, and dress style. They were always in suits or tuxedos. Very dapper. It's from The Temptations and The Jackson 5 that we will continue to see choreographed dance routines and matching ensembles. Over the course of their career, The Temptations would release four Billboard number one singles and 14 R&B number one singles. They have earned three Grammys and were the first Motown recording act to win a Grammy for Cloud Nine in 1969. And in 2013, they also received a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. Six of the members were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1989 and three songs, My Girl, Just My Imagination, and Papa Was a Rolling Stone are among the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. The Temptations continue to perform today with founder Otis Williams in the lineup. Like the Beatles were like gods to white music culture, Temptations were the equivalent for black music culture. Both groups are cultural icons in their own right. Like the Osmonds, the Jackson 5 were also an American band composed of family members, Tito, Marlon, Michael, Jackie, and Jermaine. The group was founded in 1964 in Gary, Indiana by their father, Joe Jackson. Prior to signing with Motown, they released two singles for Steel Town Records and after became championed by Bobby Taylor and Diana Ross. They were able to audition for Motown. On March 11, 1969, the brothers were signed with Barry Gordy and flown out to Los Angeles. At the time, Michael Jackson was just 10 years old and the eldest brother, Jackie, was 18. They opened up for Diana Ross in 69 and released their first single, I Want You Back. They were the first group to debut with four consecutive number one hits on the Billboard Hot 100 charts with songs I Want You Back, A, B, C, The Love You Save, and I'll Be There. I hope everyone liked that. Due to their popularity, known then as Jackson Mania, not only in the U.S., but worldwide, Motown made the Jackson 5 their main marketing focus and capitalized on the group's youth and appeal. Dozens of products were licensed with their image and name, including drum kits, stickers, board games, dolls, and even a cartoon show on ABC. While the group stayed together, Michael and Jermaine were encouraged by Motown to each go solo, which they did. Michael, obviously, with the more successful career. The Jackson 5 craze died down, and their last big hit was Dancing Machine in 1974. Dancing, dancing, dancing machine! They were honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1980, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1997. Surprisingly, they never won any Grammy Awards. They were nominated for three, but I'll Be There, I Want You Back, and ABC were all inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame between 1999 and 2017. I have many memories of MJ and the Jackson 5. 
I will always remember seeing MJ songs all the time, screaming it in the car, having people look. One of my most favorite songs, though, was by Michael Jackson, The Way You Make Me Feel. The way you make me feel. I'm not going to sing the whole song, but I love that song so much. Oh, and Dirty Diana. That was also really good. Also, there are so many, but I'm not going to listen to all. The Jackson 5 played a lot in my home growing up, and Michael Jackson as a solo artist even more. Vanessa and I were little kids right in the height of Thriller Mania, and I honestly remember it like it was yesterday. I remember when my dad gave me the album, yes, the vinyl album, which mm-hmm. I think we still have down in the basement. And when the video came out, I used to be so afraid to watch Thriller, yet at the same time, I couldn't watch it enough, like a very big Catch-22. Plus, it was like the longest music video ever at the time, and it was just, it was amazing. It was very much like a movie, the storyline, the plot, the costumes, the red jacket, the varsity jacket, and the dancing, just phenomenal. Like to this day, it's still one of the greatest music videos. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, definitely one of the best, uh, what would you call it? Like movie incorporated music video instead of the ones now that are trying to actually be a movie. It was one of the first like that too, that was like a, yeah. a, a story instead of just like a song and dance kind of thing. But they did it so well. I don't think now they can do it. It's not as good. But yeah, I was also super scared of that video. I think what scared me the most was Vincent Price's laugh. I think that was the most. But yeah, when he looked back at the camera, terrifying. Terrifying. Oh, with the eyes. Yes. Yeah. Ah, 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 ah. Yeah. Despite both the Temptations and the Jackson 5 being superstars and hugely successful, we're talking the 60s and 70s during the American Civil Rights Movement. These super successful stars had a hard time due to the color of their skin. This was nothing new for the industry. While things were getting slightly better into the 70s, it wasn't an easy road or industry to be in for people of color. In the 50s and 60s, big names like The Temptations, The Supremes, Miles Davis, Martha Reeves, Sammy Davis Jr., Charles Mingus, Sam Cooke, Lena Horne, and the OJs had to eat out of cans on the highway because they couldn't eat in white restaurants. They couldn't use restrooms at gas stations. They slept on their tour buses or station wagons because they couldn't sleep in white hotels and they couldn't walk through venues and Las Vegas casinos in which they were headlining acts. They were told, no, you're black time and time again by the same white people who enjoyed and danced to their music, but they were black and systemic racism was a thing. In an article on Billboard Pro, many of these artists tell their experiences of being black while on tour. We'll post a link to the article on our social media accounts this week, but we just wanted to share a couple of short quotes or stories from the article. Dee Dee Sharp, a singer from that time, said, I will never go back to Jackson, Mississippi, ever again. They actually stoned the bus. The Dovells, who were a white singing group on the same tour, covered my mother and I to keep the stones from coming into the bus. Mary Wilson, a singer from the Supremes, said, On the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars, a multiracial bus tour from the American Bandstand days, you had Gene Pitney, Jen and Dean, a lot of white and black acts. You had to know where to go, where people could eat, and most of the times that could not happen. It was Mr. Dick Clark who said a couple of times, if you don't take us all, then none of us should come in. He would say, get back on the bus, and we'd get back on the bus and find the right place. If it was just a busload of black people, then you can bet they would be weird. There was one policeman who told us, I'll help you out of the town, but just keep going through and don't stop. Martha Reeves, lead singer of the Vandellas, said, We toured 94 one-nighters in 1963. Imagine three whole months on a bus, riding and performing, and not being allowed to go into the facilities. We weren't allowed in the restaurants and the hotels in the South. 
Smokey Robinson said they had three toilets. One said men, one said women, and around the back somewhere, if it wasn't an outhouse, it said colored. So that meant if you were colored, you weren't a man or a woman. You were just colored and you can go in there. White people, they were men and they were women. And so they had a restroom labeled men and women. It's so ludicrous that a person be able to perform for an audience at a venue, but not be allowed to use the facilities. They're providing a service for the people in the area via their talent, and they're not even allowed to pee or use neighborhood businesses like restaurants and hotels. The logic process behind racism in the South astounds me. And like every time we do an episode and we bring up the South in the U.S. back then, it just baffles me. Even to this day, I've never been to the South and I feel afraid to go to the South. Yes. Many of the Black artists who appeared and toured in these days were Motown artists, and Motown wasn't the big powerhouse label that it is today. It started as an independent label struggling to find an audience. Over time, though, Motown would break racial barriers and dissolve the lines between Black and white fans to become one of the biggest players in the game. If you're not a fan of Motown or don't at least know of one or two songs that you absolutely love, you haven't heard the right song. Keep listening and you will not be disappointed. Before we say goodbye to the era of the 70s, I wanted to mention Puerto Rican boy band Menudo, which formed in 1977. They were one of the biggest Latin boy bands in history going into the 80s. They released their first album in 1977, and the group originally consisted of two sets of brothers, the Salaberry brothers, Fernando and Nefti, and the Melendez brothers, Carlos, Oscar, and Ricky. The band continued to perform through 2009 when they disbanded. At that point, they had had over 50 members over the course of their career. 40-plus albums to their credit. Ricky Martin was even a member from 1987 to 1989. I don't know too much else about the band or their career. I took a listen to their Spotify playlist while I was doing research, and none of the songs sounded familiar to me. And I guess that's not a surprise, I guess, as barely any of their songs charted on the U.S. Billboard chart. Oh, my God. I loved Menudo. Well, I mean, I actually only loved this one song. They were good stuff. Ricky Martin was such a babe. 80s lingo there. Um, Hold Me was my favorite song. We're definitely going to post a video of this song with their awesome clothes and amazing dance moves. The dance moves are amazing. Not awkward at all. Doesn't look like the dancer is standing in front of them, teaching them as the video is filming. Um, I really like Ricky Martin when he went solo as well. I mean, he was really young in Menudo, I think maybe 10. Let's move into the 80s where we have the soulful R&B music of New Edition. It's really from the 80s onward that we really see the idea of the modern boy band. New Edition became really popular really quickly. The group consisted of five local guys from Roxbury, Boston, all names we still know well to this day. Bobby Brown, Michael Bivens, Ricky Bell, Ralph Tresvent, and Ronnie DeVoe, all superstars in their own right, but all have their time being in New Edition to thank for kickstarting their careers. The group would perform at school talent shows until their big break, winning a contract from producer Maurice Starr. From there, we would hear hits like Candy Girl, Cool It Now, and Popcorn Love, reaching the height of their early popularity in the 1980s. I don't know what Popcorn Love, do I? Sing it. I don't know what Popcorn Love is myself. Maybe if I hear it. Popcorn Love, eating at the movies. Bobby Brown left the group in 1985, and Johnny Gill, who is yet another well-known name, true to R&B fans, joined the group in 1987. I want to play Popcorn Love. Okay, good. They're so funny with their dancing. Imagine they still dance like that. Good lord. Probably do. Gyrating. I need to know they want you, girl. I know not this song. 
I probably heard it. My dad used to play New Edition religiously. New Edition is good stuff. Johnny Gill and Ralph Tresvent would also release solo albums. While remaining in the group, the remaining members from Belle Biv DeVoe, who, as we know, were also widely successful. They would release five albums before DeVoe. They would release five albums before disbanding. But all six members would come together in 1996 to release their Home Again album. Their last studio album was recorded in 2004, titled One Love. All six members still performed together under the name New Edition. The rise to fame and to where they are now was never easy, as they were screwed time and time again by agents, managers, and record labels, never personally getting the residuals they were owed for their talent. It took them years to work themselves out of debt that they need to borrow from labels to buy themselves out or various contracts. They received their star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 2017, and this year they were inducted to the Black Music and Entertainment Walk of Fame. Thanks to New Edition, music fans since have been graced by the sultry R&B sounds of other boy bands in their image, like Drew Hill, Jodeci, Boys to Men, Blackstreet, Jagged Edge, and 112, just to name a few. A lot of these groups, especially ones from the early 90s, will forever be some of my favorites. And songs like Motown Philly, Love You For Life, No Diggity, and Let's Get Married will always be on my playlist. Next up on the roster of successful boy bands that changed the industry are my all-time favorite band. And yes, I know they're white, but I don't care because I love them. I am a blockhead for life. I'm talking about New Kids on the Block. Like almost every band out there, they had struggles in the beginning before becoming household names. They lost members, their group name changed, and they had to prove to the world that they had what it took to make it. After Maurice Starr lost New Edition due to legal battles, which had to do with the financial issues Vanessa mentioned, Maurice Starr was determined to achieve the success of New Edition elsewhere. He figured he could achieve even greater success with a white band. And so the search for white Boston teens with the ability to sing, rap, and dance was put in place. Early members like Mark Wahlberg and Jamie Kelly didn't make it to the final inception of the group. But Donnie Wahlberg, Jordan Knight, Jonathan Knight, Danny Wood, and Joey McIntyre did. In the early years, Donnie, Jordan, John, and Danny were bussed out of Dorchester, Boston in an effort to desegregate Boston schools, and they went to school in Black areas and thus were introduced to new music, new dances, and ways of life that they didn't see at home or in their own neighborhood. Plus, working with Maurice Starr, a Black producer, choreographer, and songwriter, they were on a different level. The rest is history. Their first self-titled album didn't do well, but their second, Hangin' Tough, catapulted them into stardom unlike anything the industry had ever seen maybe since the Beatles. With 10 albums under their belts and over 80 million records sold worldwide, the band continues to tour and release singles almost yearly. Several members have had solo careers with album releases. Donnie currently stars alongside Tom Selleck on Blue Buds, and Jonathan has an HD TV series titled Farmhouse Fixer. They are Grammy-nominated and have won two American Music Awards. They received their star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 2014. In 2019, New Kids released a new single with a music video titled Boys in the Band, the boy band anthem. The video included cameos from New Edition and InSync members and featured many Easter eggs from several other boy bands, including the Osmonds, Jackson 5, Boys to Men, Backstreet Boys, LFO, Menudo, O-Town, BTS, One Direction, Take That, and Westlife. Not about take that. I loved them. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Take that. Take that and party. Since I became a New Kids fan from the early 80s, I've only missed two concerts in Toronto. Once because I literally just had a baby like two weeks prior. And the one this year because I just can't afford the tickets right now. 
I own trading cards, the dolls, pajamas, silk pillows, bed sheets, t-shirts, you name it. If their faces were on it, Jordan Knight especially, because that is my forever husband, I purchased it. I'm a fan for life and I will be until the day I die. Moving into the 90s, boy bands exploded onto the scene unlike before. It was happening all over the world. Boy bands were everywhere. Major players included NSYNC, yes. Boys to Men, yes. And the Backstreet Boys in the US, and Take That in the UK. Take that and party. These bands were created solely to generate cash. Girls were going crazy for the likes of Justin Timberlake, Nick Carter, and Robbie Williams. Robbie Williams is a definite babe. There were literally so many boy bands in the 90s, we wouldn't dare list them all. Many bands were even one hit of wonders, but every band had four to five members of handsome, not horrible singers, not horrible dancers, uh, great style and charisma. And almost most of the super successful bands were white. In the 2000s, the prolific stardom of boy bands wasn't as apparent, although many of the members of past boy bands were dominating the charts with their solo projects. We would still see bands like Westlife out of the UK and the Jonas Brothers in the US. And then moving into the 2010s to present day, there was One Direction and then BTS out of Korea, the first ever Korean band to chart on US charts. They are the most successful music act in Korean history, and they recently announced a hiatus. They plan to focus on solo careers. And if history has taught us anything about boy band hiatuses, they are most likely never going to come back together in a way or style that their diehard fans want them to. I think we can wrap this episode up now. We've covered a lot. And while we obviously didn't talk about the likes of every boy band to ever exist, Sorry 98 Degrees and your chest slapping and O-Town and LFO and B2K. What about what about Before 4 or Indecision? Who's Indecision? Kinda Those three guys are kind of fade, but feel all right. Think about making my move tonight. I can't pretend that you're only my friend when you're holding my body tight. No? No, all I can think about, baby, when the lights go out. Oh, oh, who's that? Five. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, uh, the number five for the F instead of yes. the F, right? Yeah. Oh, man, that's, that was a good one. We covered most of the relevant and industry-changing acts to help pave and shape the ideals and presence that boy bands have within the music industry. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And remember to like, subscribe, or follow Mixed DNA Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And follow us on any or all of our social media accounts to join in the conversation about this week's episode or any of our past episodes. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Mixed DNA Podcast. Bye for now. Bye, everyone. Bye, 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 bye. 